So we're on our third week looking at the life of Peter. And I just want to say from the very start, if you ever feel discouraged about your own self and wonder if God can use you, Peter is your man. Because we're going to learn a little bit this morning about how God eventually used Peter in powerful ways. But his name was not originally Peter. His name was Simon, son of John. Simon was the most common name in Palestine, and some believe that it meant flat-nosed. So I'm pretty confident he was happy that after he met Jesus, he got a new name. And it starts right away in John chapter 1. Jesus meets Peter, sees him, and it says in John chapter 1, verse 42, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. And Cephas, Peter, means the rock. And it was a name that certainly did not fit him at all right away. Peter, Jesus' best friend, the lead disciple, eventually one of the strongest evangelists, leaders in the early church, Peter initially was not a rock. He was unpredictable and somewhat unstable, which reminds me of a funny story. This was over a decade ago when our small group was just starting to meet. Chuck and I were kind of new to the group uh, and involved the Vanderwheels and the Chestnuts, and I'm not sure who else was in the group, but we were relatively new to the group. And one night, my good friend, Sean Chestnut, just said loudly across the table to me, you know, I really like you. You're so unstable in all your ways. And you know that kind of a smile you get on your face when you're like kind of hurt, but you're kind of trying to be friendly because it looks like he means something nice. We got in the car later and my husband just kept saying, I'm sure he meant unpredictable. I'm confident he meant unpredictable, not unstable. You're not unstable in any way, Alice. Anyway, we've, we've had fun with that over the years. But if you remember the first week that we were together, if you were here, we looked at Peter's effort to walk on the water in the midst of a storm. And we talked about how Jesus allowed him to sink that day so that Peter could learn to trust in Jesus' power and not in his own. I read the other day, there is no way to really learn how to trust God until you are drowning. And I think Peter needed to learn that lesson the hard way. And last week, if you were here, we looked at Peter's response to Jesus' desire to wash the disciples' feet the night of Jesus' arrest and Jesus, or Peter's first response to Jesus was, no way, you're not going to wash my feet. Which is a bit like some of us who refuse Jesus' free offer to wash our feet, to wash away the stain of our sin. And Peter's second response was, okay, then you wash everything, not just my feet. Which is the response of so many of us who, who believe in Jesus. We believe that he's washed our feet, washed away the stain of our sin, but we somehow have this suspicion that it's not quite enough. And so we constantly, we live a life of trying to add our own goodness to what Jesus has already freely offered in the hopes that will make up for what we believe is Jesus' deficit. Peter had to learn to let Jesus wash his feet so he could learn how to live in this world as his follower. And as we've looked at Peter through especially these two stories, we've seen that he has had to learn kind of the theme of this summer series, which is that this is God's story and that God is the hero of this story. And yes, he invites us in to play our part, 
But Peter had to learn those first two things, it seems like, that this was God's story and God was the hero before he could fully play the part that God had for him, before he could become who Jesus knew he would become the day he looked at Peter and said, you will no longer be called Simon. In the, in the book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 17, there's a very interesting verse that tells us that God calls into being things that are not yet reality. And when Jesus renamed Peter, I believe that he was doing this. He called Peter the rock when he was not yet even a grain of sand. He called him the rock when Jesus knew that Peter would sink like a stone. He knew that he would become a stumbling block, that he would crumble like clay when pressed. Jesus called him the rock then because he knew who Peter was destined by God to become. And it reminds me just a little bit of my middle daughter, our middle daughter, Tracy, who's now 23. But when she was little, um, she was just born fairly shy and fairly self-conscious and fearful of new situations. And we noted, you know, as we raised her, that sometimes this, these attributes got in her way. I remember the first day of preschool, I was carrying her in um, to a preschool in a church somewhere in Waterloo, and she was wrapped around me like a small monkey. Her legs and her arms were just, she was stuck to me. And she was just going, <laughs> I, I somehow unstuck her from myself and dropped her off. But I just will always remember that day as a mom. And then as she got into grade school, uh, teachers developed this thing called student-led conferences. Are these still a thing? Where you sit down at a tiny, tiny table with your child, and then the child leads you in conferences. So we would get there and share little niceties with the teacher, and then we'd all turn and face Tracy, and she would immediately burst into tears. And the teacher would kind of look at Chuck and me like, I wonder what kind of parents they are. I'm like, she just does it. She just cries. We're nice. But we, Chuck and I learned that parents can help kids become a little bit more brave and a little bit less shy by gently coaching them and even placing them in appropriately challenging situations and then letting them borrow some of our bravery to help them learn that they can be brave themselves. And we also learned that you can start giving kids nicknames that they could live into. And so we started calling Tracy Braveheart. And I especially called her this all the time. And lo and behold, not right away, but over the course of her young life, and especially now at 23, we see the results of naming her Braveheart. We saw something in her that was not there yet. It had not manifest itself yet, but we believed that it could be called out, that it needed to be called out. And so two years ago, when she was a junior in college, she um, went to Cape Town, South Africa to study abroad, and she started to send home these photos. This this was one of the first ones she sent home. This is Tracy um, uh, snowboarding on a sand dune somewhere in South Africa. Next one. Okay, do you see that bridge? That is the tallest bungee jumping bridge in Africa. I couldn't bring you the video because I cannot watch it, for I'm sure she will die even just in the video. But she and that girl next to her bungee jumped off that bridge straight down. They gave her a helmet. That was supposed to help me feel better. Um, Next video, I mean next picture, is her in a cave somewhere. I can't believe she got out of that. See that man? He's saying 
get smaller. I don't know what he's saying to her. And then the next one is a picture of her skydiving off the coast of the southern tip of South Africa. And today she does uh, AIDS testing in the heart of Washington, D.C., drives a mobile unit right down into the heart of D.C. So you might want to maybe name your kid like appropriately, cautiously courageous. I wouldn't pick Braveheart or your heart will barely beat. Uh, But she became her new name which was this beautiful thing. And there's this incredible verse. It's a little confusing. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, where the Spirit is giving messages to the churches. And I just want you to listen to it and think with me for a minute. Revelation 2 verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And I may be pressing this a bit, but I wonder if God is going to give us a new name someday. I believe that he already knows what it is. And it's based, I think, on what he sees in us and what he wants to call out and name as true, even when we don't even know yet that it is true. He has a tendency to do this. God called Simon the rock Before he was even a pebble, God called Abram, Abraham, the father of nations, before he even had one kid. God called Jacob Israel while he was yet a deceiver. And God called Tracy Braveheart when she was still weeping in fear before preschool. And I wonder what God's new name might be for you. I wonder what God sees in you that you can't yet see in yourself. What great after-church discussion this could be. Would you please go home and talk about this with each other? What name do you think God might give the person or the people that you live with? What do you see in each other that sometimes the person themselves can't see? What needs to be called out as true? Would you call someone in your family the kind one? Would one of you be called the encourager? Or the overcomer? Would one of you be called the maker of great food? And one of you the eater of great food? And listen, kids, I don't want you to go home and make up names for your sister or your brother like my kids did when they were little. That's a different kind of game for another day. Tracy used to call Hannah Bossy Cow, and she called her little brother Toaster Head. And in a strange way, those names have stuck. But again, like I said, that's a different kind of game. I'm talking about looking at the people that you love the most and thinking about good and powerful names. I think God might call me one who speaks in public who never, ever thought she could ever speak in public without wetting her pants. And it would be on a big white boulder, not a little white stone, because it's so long. What might your new name be? Simon eventually grows into the rock Jesus knew he would become. And what's so incredibly refreshing, to me at least, and I hope to you, is that this happens first through his failures and his struggles and his misunderstandings of who Jesus is. And only then, after Jesus' resurrection, does this fully manifest itself, not through his failures, but through power. And in the first few chapters of the book of Acts is where we see this start to happen, where Simon becomes Peter, 
the rock. And Acts is a book in the New Testament right after the four Gospels, and it's, it picks up right after Jesus' resurrection. And what we find, and I encourage you to go home and read about the first 12 chapters, and you'll see Peter on fire with power. When he's arrested... Because he is no longer a denier of Jesus, but an evangelist, a man who preaches powerfully in Jesus' name. He no longer cowers in fear. He no longer says to people, I never knew the man. But he speaks up and he says, I am his follower, even though he's threatened with prison and death. We see in the book of Acts, Peter preached four sermons. And this previously uneducated fisherman, whose mouth tended to get him in trouble all the time brought thousands and thousands of people to Christ. It is in the book of Acts that Peter finally becomes his name. And the question I want to consider for just a few minutes this morning is what changed? What changed? How did Peter go from being this bumbling, stumbling guy to everyone's mind, a complete and utter failure of both a friend and a disciple at Jesus' most critical hour? How did he go from that to being Peter the rock? And I think there were three things that changed. The first is he experienced the resurrected Jesus. That'll change a person. The second is that he received the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And third, when he was fully at the end of himself, he ran smack dab into grace. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning, thinking about that last thing that changed Peter, the life-changing grace of Jesus. See, Peter, during his three-year ministry run with Jesus, when Jesus was on the earth, he learned about grace. He learned about it from Jesus. He saw it in action. And yet I don't think he fully understood grace for himself until that moment on that dark terrifying, confusing, frantic, distressing night of Jesus' arrest, when Jesus said to Peter, you are going to deny that you even know me. And Peter said, me? Deny you? Me? You? Me? You? Do you guys remember the joke from last week that went this badly? I'm I'm trying it again. I paid the van to laugh. Can you hear him? (laughs) Okay, I'm not ever going to use that joke again. It's from Saturday Night Live, you guys. Topher. Okay. Not me, Jesus said. I would never deny you. And it wasn't until he claimed that he would never do it, that all the other disciples might do it, but not him. And he did it three times. It is then that Peter became so broken and so painfully aware that all of his bravado, all the I'm the big man stuff just crumbled. And he became incredibly aware of his sin and his capacity to fail. He was, as they say in the book of Acts, cut to the heart. And he was cut to the heart about himself. He was such an utter failure. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been cut to the heart about your own capacity to fail? To let someone you love down. To hurt people, people that you care about most. 
Peter was cut to the heart because he failed Jesus in an excruciating manner that just crushed him. And then Jesus died. And he came back to life. And he came for his disciples. And yet Peter had to believe that he had been disqualified. If anybody deserved to be disqualified, it was Peter. And then we get to John chapter 21, the very last chapter in the book of John. When the risen Jesus appears to his disciples on a beach. And I know that many people believe that Jesus reinstated Peter into the ministry when he asked him three times, do you love me? And you'll notice if you go home and look at that section of John 21, that Jesus calls him Simon. He doesn't call him Peter then. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? He asks him three times. But I actually think the reinstatement of Peter into the life and ministry of Jesus starts earlier. I believe the giving of full grace happened even prior to that do you love me conversation. Just listen to what John writes. John chapter 21, starting with verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. They had been fishing. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. If you go back and read the story of how Peter was called to be one of Jesus' disciples, it's this exact same scenario. And when they did, when they threw the net on the right side of the boat, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, because he's writing this story, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Now, the first week of my series, I told you that Peter took his clothes off to jump in the water. I was wrong. He actually put his clothes on to jump back in the water, which is even weirder, makes me love him even more. So he puts them back on, he jumps into the water, and the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, not that they counted, But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I read a survey the other day in which Americans were asked what words they would most like to hear. What phrases do Americans most love to hear? I asked for audience participation in the first service and somebody yelled out, coffee's ready. And I was like, no disqualified. So I'm not even going to ask for your help. The first choice, I think many of us would predict the phrase that we most love to hear is I love you. I love you. Second is I forgive you. But the third phrase that most Americans love to hear is a, was a complete surprise to me. And it is supper's ready. Supper's ready. Come, Jesus said, breakfast is ready. And in Jewish culture, in the days of Jesus, when Jesus ate a meal with someone, it symbolized to that person and to everyone watching, 
Jesus has accepted this person. This person is now a part of God's family. Jesus and this person are good together. And this was called table fellowship. And it was what made the religious leaders so angry at Jesus because he was always eating with sinners. And that just ticked them off because it meant that these people who Jesus ate with were accepted by Jesus and his father. And so look at what Jesus did and said to the disciples and Peter that day on the beach when Jesus said to them, come, breakfast is ready. And Peter was included. This meant Jesus was saying to Peter, I love you. I forgive you. I accept you. And supper's ready. And I believe that moment made Peter, that moment right there made Peter into the impactful, powerful follower of Christ that he became. Because right on the heels of his most disqualifying moment, Jesus offers him the free gift of forgiveness and grace and acceptance. He doesn't get disqualified, my friends. He got his job back. Grace changed Peter. It helped him become the rock. And grace should change us too. So three truths I want to talk about just in, 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 in finishing this up here. Three truths that I think grace brings to us. And the first is that grace brings us to the end of ourselves. Grace brings us to the end of ourselves. As Dallas Willard said, the address of God is at the end of your rope. We don't want to get to the end of ourselves, but God always wants us to get to the end of ourselves because it means that we start to transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus. When we get to the end of ourselves, it means that we are really, really, really getting. We're not just saying, we're getting that this is God's story and that we are not the hero. Thanks be to God. When we get to the end of ourselves, we all stop trying to be the hero. And Peter came to the end of himself. Peter was done with the belief that his life with the Father was based on his own good performance. I'm going to say that again. He was done with the belief that his life with God was based on his own good performance. That belief was shattered, finally, with this third denial of Jesus. I never knew the man. And once he hit the end of himself, grace was all he had, and he knew it. There was no part of Peter that thought, Jesus has to love me because of how good I am. None. He got grace because he got to the end of himself. As one writer said, grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Peter knew he was undeserving and his whole life changed. Brings us to the end of ourself, but grace also brings us freedom from fear. Jesus knew the worst about Peter, and he loved him anyway. And Peter learned this the hard way. When Peter denied Jesus three times, we are told right after that third time in in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus looked at Peter. In fact, I I think I have brought the scripture. 
It says the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now, what's really cool here is the word for looked is the Greek word emblepo, which means to see with your mind, not just your eyes, to see with your mind and to understand something. It's the same word Jesus uses when he says, consider the lilies of the field, emblepo them, look at them with your mind and understand them. And now we read that after Peter received this look, Jesus looks at him, Peter went out and wept bitterly which makes us think it makes me think at least jesus looked at him with anger jesus looked at him with incredible sadness jesus looked at him with condemnation but scholars do not believe that jesus looked at peter with condemnation they believe instead that jesus looked straight at peter understood him with his mind saw him at his weakest and at his worst And that the look that he gave Peter was a look of love and grace and forgiveness. Which is exactly what you and I should expect from Jesus when we are at our worst. Seeing Peter at his absolute worst, Jesus looks at him with grace and heads toward the cross for him. Do you understand the kind of freedom this can bring to the human soul? Jesus looks straight at us. He looks at you and he looks at me and he sees the worst, my friends. There's nothing we can do to hide it and he heads to the cross. Just like Peter Because Jesus sees the worst of us and he looks at us with grace and forgiveness, we have nothing to earn. We have nothing to prove. We have nothing to hold on to. We have nothing to hide. And this should bring us freedom from fear. In J.I. Packer's amazing book, Knowing God, which I've had my copy since college, which was a long time ago, he writes, there is tremendous relief There's tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery now can delusion him about me. God's not shocked at the worst about us. He sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see, and I am glad. And he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. And for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose when we understand like peter did in that moment the grace of jesus then the fear of condemnation from God, the fear of judgment from God, which is just slavery to the human soul, it's gone. And we become free, just like we sang up here, free to stop pretending to be something we're not, free to stop justifying ourselves as better than we actually are, free to stop thinking it is all up to us, free to stop running from God, free from the endless treadmill of performance, free from guilt and insecurity and the fear that we don't measure up, because we don't, that if we're discovered for who we really are, we will be disqualified. Peter was discovered by Jesus for who he really was. 
And he was not only not disqualified, he was promoted in Christ. Grace brings us to the end of ourself. Grace brings us this incredible freedom from fear. And grace brings power. Grace brings the power of God into a human life. Because once we fully step into that free grace of Jesus, God's power is just free to flow through our veins. It's like when our shower drains get clogged with junk and I pour the drain stuff down the drain. I don't know what it is. I just buy it at the hardware store. I pour it down there. Boom. The water just starts to flow. When we let Jesus clear out the guilt and the shame and the fearful striving and the effort in our hearts and our lives, God's power is free to just flow out through us. Eugene Peterson, who's the writer of the message paraphrase of the Bible, states that the root word in self, the root word for salvation, that word that is at the heart of the Christian faith, the root word in Hebrew, which is the language of the Old Testament, I think I have a slide for this, means to be broad, to become spacious, to enlarge. Isn't that beautiful? When we get God's grace, when we start to live in the kind of salvation that Jesus brings to us, we don't get smaller and tighter and narrower We are to start to live large, broad, expansive lives. Mainly because once we really get grace, we stop becoming so self-obsessed. You see, we turn our eyes outward toward the world that God wants us to love in his power, rather than constantly looking inward and assessing, 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 how am I doing? We leave ourselves in Jesus' capable hands, and we get about his business in his power. This is what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. That's the kind of freedom that can only be purchased with grace. And this is the kind of power that started to flow through Peter in the book of Acts. It was not Peter's own power, and it was not the trumped-up power that guilt makes us feel or shame or fear no the power that was at work in peter in the book of acts was the broad wide expansive power of the saving grace of jesus christ how did simon become peter how did simon become his true self the rock grace It brought him to the end of himself. It brought him freedom from fear. And it brought into his life the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You and I would not be here, I believe, without Peter. And I believe he would say to us today, Oh, Live in the grace and the power of Jesus. He writes it at the very end of his second letter in the New Testament, Second Peter 3. Grow, he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And as you grow in that grace, you will become your true self in Christ. Amen. Let's, let's pray and continue to worship.
God, you are so good. And you want us to live in freedom. You want us to live at the end of our rope where you can be found. You want us to live freed up from fear. And you want us to live in your power. And all of this can happen in our lives if we simply fully believe that your grace is enough. And I know that's a journey, God. Some of us think we're there already, but we have 10 more times we need to learn the same lesson. Be with us while you teach us, God, just like you were with Peter. And Father, would you help each one of us, each one in this room, to become in reality that new name that you've already named us as our good and loving Father. Help us become our full selves in Christ for your glory. 